Join the conversation at everydaynovelist.com. Submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat. Or find the host at jdsawyer on minds.com, or hit him up at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you. Welcome to the Everyday Novelist. My name is J. Daniel Sawyer, and I am your guide in this raucous journey of coping with the creative life. Fueled by your questions, we explore the trials and travails of productivity, discipline, art, and finances in the writing life. Welcome to The Questions, episode 1054. Welcome, welcome back to the Everyday Novelist. I am Dan Sawyer. And I am still Kitty Nikian. And we are still out here in the wilderness doing all those things we just spent the last few episodes talking about. So if you have any questions, please send them in and keep us going. We will talk about anything at this point. We've got about... Uh, Seven or eight questions deep in the queue right now, which means that by the time you're hearing this, everything we have will be recorded, and we will be desperate for more content to record so that we can keep you entertained. So well, ask questions. Uh, yeah, send questions, comments, criticisms, death threats of a comical and not serious variety. Though if you are serious, we would rather hear about it so that we can take measures. So, you know, yeah, use we, your we, own we, we actually trust that no one will be able to get up here anyway, so... <laughs> barely get anywhere. Oh, yeah. I drove the car into a snowbank today. Gotta go dig it out tomorrow. Fun, fun times. Um. <laughs> Shall we go on to the question? We should go on to the question. That would be good. Today we hear from Indiana Jim, who says... You said on Twitter that you had read a 500-page book by a reputed master, whom in the last eight pages breaks all thematic plot and character logic. Without throwing this particular author under the bus, could you provide more detail on how this was accomplished so that we might avoid such a pitfall? Yeah, the reason I didn't name the author or the book on Twitter is the author is a friend of a friend um, and someone I have met on a few occasions and I just would feel bad slagging them off in public. So I won't tell you who it was. But it was a master. It was someone whose name, if you're in genre circles, either mystery or science fiction, you will know and you will expect from them of the highest sort of accomplishment. Even if it's not to your taste, you will expect this person to know their stuff because they have the kind of stack of awards that you can use as a throne. In this particular book, it was a mystery thriller, a conspiracy slash legal thriller with a weird science fiction-y edge, which, considering that I write those kinds of mysteries with my Clark Lantham mystery series, seems right up my alley, and it was. The prose was brilliant, had me hooked from the opening line. I could tell within three paragraphs I was in the hands of a master. This person knows their shit. It's the kind of person who you want to trust because you can sense through the words that they absolutely know what they're doing. Which made it very awkward when, at the end of the book, one of the characters spontaneously transforms into a disembodied spirit to lead the killer away through the mist never to be seen again. And the killer himself turns out to be a self-hating repressed homosexual who is somehow committing sexual sadism murders targeted at women, but has only ever done it once or twice, so it's not a compulsion. 
and kills other people incidentally when it's convenient. And if you know anything about criminology, this doesn't make sense at all. Anything about abnormal psych absolutely doesn't work. And this author should know better, because this author has done better, and this was not an early career book. And at the end of this, uh, this book, the scandalous scientific research, which drives people mad and evidently gives them the ability to ascend to a higher plane of existence in order to fuck with people, which was, by the way, not established or even hinted at until the moment it happened five pages from the end. This forbidden research, which the entire book had been obsessed with finding and then destroying, and had successfully destroyed, and there had been great attention to detail in the destruction of this research so that it wouldn't kill anyone else, because it was one of those things where, like, it was one of those MacGuffins where knowing about something makes you crazy and makes you murderous, crazy person. Like the ring? Like the ring, except that the only murderer in the whole story was someone who hadn't seen the research, which was kind of cute. But it makes you a murderous, crazy person, so it had to be destroyed. So they destroyed it all. And then on the last page... On the last page! It's revealed that there is another copy that somehow got made and given to one of the characters and put on their computer, and this character and several of his schoolmates are now all going crazy from the research and becoming homicidal maniacs that are going to ascend to a higher plane of existence and then lead the next generation of weird gay serial killers off into the mist like a will-o'-the-wisp. So, kind of like this author started writing a mystery novel, a straight mystery novel with some science fiction-y edges, mm -hmm. and then watched The Ring and said, oh, that's cool. Yeah, except this was done years and years and years before the even the Japanese version of The Ring. Really? Really. If this writer was intending this from the beginning, the writer did not lay the adequate foundation. If the writer was not intending this from the beginning, then what happened is the writer wrote themselves into a series of corners and just started pulling shit off the wall, uh, off the shelf and throwing it against the wall to see what would stick. Either way, the climax destroyed all the character arcs that she had that the author had done such a great job creating investment in. This climax destroyed all the suspense that had been that the audience had invested in for all this time, because it literally ends in a Deus Ex Machina. In fact, it ends because one of the characters becomes God because he looked at a machine. So it is literally a Deus Ex Machina, oh. and it breaks the entire thematic thrust of the book, which was around guilt and forgiveness and unrequited desire and especially re redeeming oneself from past uh, mistakes and indiscretions. Totally breaks that. And it breaks all of the genre conventions by suddenly turning into some kind of weird hybrid of supernatural horror and supernatural epiphany at the end of a very, very long book that was entirely materialist in nature. That actually sounds like a kitchen sink version of everything that I think goes wrong with modern television. Actually, yeah, it very much is like watching modern television. So how can you avoid that? Pay attention to what you're promising your readers. If you're going to do a genre shift, and a genre shift 
is kind of hard to pull off, but it can be done. I did it apparently successfully based on audience response in Down From 10, and I did it apparently successfully based on audience response in the first Clark Lantham mystery where the genre shift is right in the middle and you shift from hard everyday mystery to a mystery with techno thriller mixed in. You can pull this off. Other writers have pulled this off many times before, but yeah, yeah, you have to hint at it. You have to prepare the audience. The audience has to subconsciously expect that it's going to happen, but not consciously suspect that it's going to happen. If they consciously suspect that it's going to happen, they're going to be bored when the shift comes. If they don't suspect that it's going to happen, they're going to feel betrayed when the shift comes. And if they subconsciously suspect it's going to happen, then when it happens, they're going to feel so satisfied. And relieved. And relieved. And a sense of almost religious epiphany and ecstasy. And that's what you want to be inducing when you do a genre shift like that. What you're doing with a genre shift is, uh, the, the Greek word for it is apocalypsos. Apocalypse. The lifting of the veil. Because you have trapped your reader in the world of one genre. And then with the genre shift, you are lifting the veil between the genres. Just like an apocalyptic vision in a religious experience is the lifting of the veil between the material world and the spirit world. And what you should be accomplishing when you have the, when you have the genre shift moment, when everything is revealed, it should explain mm -hmm. things in the story that didn't quite make sense. Yes. yes. Um, films that do this fairly well are um, The Usual Suspects. Well, no, that, that, that accomplishes a twist really well. It's not a genre shift. Okay. A genre shift is a particular Sixth rarefied Sense. kind of twist. Sixth, Sixth Sense, Sense well, was a genre shift. Yeah. And it was effective, but it cheated. So it's not really a good example. Um, a good example in the world of books is Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Mm. It starts life as a mystery... And then it becomes a ghost story, and then it becomes a science fiction story. And all the pieces are there from the very all beginning. All the pieces are there literally from the first scene, the first five sentences. Oh, the other thing is that when you, when you do this kind of a genre shift, the second time you read it... It has to be a different book. It, it ends up being a very different book because you're like, oh, that's what was going. Yeah. The, oh! Yep, the, the beautiful thing about a genre shift is that you never get to read it twice. The second time you read it, it is a completely different book. Everything has different shades of meaning. Everything has a different level of significance. What you're doing is it's... Um, in ancient religious texts, there was often what's called the exoteric reading, which is the plain sense meaning of the text, and the esoteric reading, which is the symbolic encoding of the occult knowledge. What you're doing with a genre shift is you're writing two books at the same time. You're writing the exoteric text and the esoteric text. And the point of the first read-through, in terms of what you're doing to your reader, is to initiate them into the cult, so that the second time they read it, they can't even see the exoteric text, they can only see the esoteric text. And that's why it works when it does, is because you are recreating a religious experience. There is a sense in which any time you read a book twice, the, the book is a second, a different experience the second time, 
this is, this is a much very more per- profound. Yeah, very particular sense, and it has a much more profound effect on the reader. So how do you not do it wrong? Well, don't wing it, for one. If you do wing it, go back afterwards and make sure it's seated in. Um, do the Agatha Christie thing. Do go the back, Agatha Christie, yes. Go back and plant the seeds. Yeah, what Agatha Christie used to do is write by the seat of her pants up until the solution, the scene, the scene where Poirot reveals all. And then she would stop, and she would go back and read the whole book, and she would decide who was least likely, and she would make them the killer, and then she would go back and drop in little teeny hints. So teeny that you could you, you really couldn't notice they're there unless you knew her formula. And even then, it's iffy. But because those hints were there, the readers felt like she had played fair which is why she is the most successful mystery writer in history. You do that kind of a trick. Um, what I did with uh, Down From Ten, partly out of desperation, because I was having a hell of a time I mean, seeding in the uncanny elements as I was going along so that you could tell something was up, but you didn't know what. That part was easy. That's just basic writing. But the twist at the end was so big that I was I was sure that it wasn't going to work just leaving it at that. So what I did on no less than five occasions in the book, one of the characters actually says what's going on. They don't know that that's what's going on. They're just playing around. They're saying, hey, this is kind of like, what if we were in a story that did this? Or someone would say something that's close to what happens to the actual twist, and then someone would reply, this sounds like a third-rate sci-fi novel. <laughs> you know, stuff like that. And that would, no less than five times, it may have been more than that, but five times I remember distinctly, the entire plot twist was said in plain language in front of the audience, so that when it came, the audience was expecting it. And when I gave this, I, I, and the way I tried to make, it, to make sure it worked before I released it to the public, after it had gone editing, proofreading, everything, I gave copies to two sets of people. One set, I didn't tell them what was going on. And the other set, I did. One of the people who I didn't tell what was going on, who absolutely loved it, I cast in the, uh, in the radio drama version. And as he's reading his lines in the booth, I have this, it is the most glorious blooper ever. He's in the middle of reading his lines, and he had one of the lines that gives the whole plot away. Mm -hmm. He got halfway through the line, and he said, You son of a bitch! I can't believe you did that! You told us right there! Oh, I'm gonna kill you! And he actually left the booth, and he came over, and he swapped me on the arm. (laughs) It was beautiful. It means I did my job. But yeah, that's how you avoid doing that. The difference between real life and fiction is that in fiction, things have to make sense. In real life, there's, the world is so chaotic that even though everything has a cause and everything has contributing causes and every cause has an effect and all of that, the limitedness of the individual perspective means that you can get caught off guard and bowled over by stuff that you had no idea even existed. It can kill you. It can completely change your life. Luck is a profoundly powerful force in real life. Also bears. But luck 
is not and cannot be a profoundly powerful force in fiction unless it's set up that way explicitly in the story that luck runs things. You can't bring things in from outside the the world you, of the you, book, you the world of the story. You can't do this in fables and um, fairy tales and that sort of thing because that's kind of how they work. Well, no, it's not. They've got they exist within a larger set of cultural story logic. Right, and sometimes luck can be a major. Well, yeah, thing. luck can be a major thing, but 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 randomness isn't. All right. The the world of the story is constrained by what you tell your audience, and if you're cleverly enough hooking into the meta tradition around it, the history of Western literature and myth, by what those symbols will prime your audience to expect. Hmm. But you are limited to the world of literature. What, and that literature being both what you're writing and the tradition you're building upon. You cannot just throw things in willy-nilly because they happen to work. If you do that, you then have to go back and plant them earlier. Otherwise, you get the fate that this writer did, which is having another writer or a, ver a very vocal audience member excoriating you on Twitter, and most of the time they're going to use your name because they don't know you and they don't want to be, and they don't care about being an asshole in public. Uh, anything else we should hit here? You were there when I finished that book and started screaming <laughs> out loud. Uh, <laughs> it was pretty theatrical. Yes, but I haven't read it, so I don't have direct experience with what mm. the what the story might have promised or fail to deliver on. Honestly, this is something that, that we've mentioned, both of us, as things we can't stand in books, television, movies, when they deliver an ending that doesn't fit with the rest of the story. Yes. And it really doesn't take a lot of work to go back in and seed the little things mm -hmm. that make the ending that you end up with work for that story. Yep. And if, you, if you're writing by the seat of your pants, sometimes it happens that the ending goes a different direction, and it's just a matter of going back in and, and putting those little pieces in. Yeah. Now, the other, way, the other way you can ruin a story like this, and this wasn't how this author did it, but this actually happened with Greg Isles at the end of his Mississippi trilogy, which is a real tragedy because it was a beautiful trilogy. You can have a failure of nerve. If you get to the end of a story and the resolution demanded by what you've set up is something that you are not morally comfortable with or that you're scared of, uh, of loosing on the world and getting blowback from or whatever. If there's something about it that you just can't handle and so you want to soften it and change it and take it another way, don't do what Greg Isles did in book three of that series. Greg Isles had set up a love interest for the main character all the way through, and it was going to be a scandalous love interest, and it was going to be a very interesting resolution, and it had great thematic resonance with the rest of the story. And then he lost his nerve, and halfway through book three, he swapped the love interest out for another love interest that was much more politically correct, and much less taboo. And it ruined the story. It didn't just deflate it, it ruined it. because, And it wasn't because this other road he went down was horrible. It's because he changed it out in the middle of Volume 3 of a trilogy. It sucked 
the trust out of the author-reader relationship. And so the suspense that he had been building, like the master he is, through the first two and a half books, you couldn't care about it because you didn't trust that he wasn't going to cheat again. Mm -hmm. And that's another way you can break your... um, you can break your book in the final pages is by chickening out. If you get to the end and you find out that there's something going on, your story has demands that you are not comfortable with. You either have to see it through and let it loose, or you have to go back and change what came before so that what you wind up delivering is what you promised early on. This is tough in a situation like a series of novels when when Uh you change your mind at the last minute in the final book or in a television series where you lose your nerve in the last season. Season. Oh, God. We've seen a lot of those recently, haven't we? We we have. The previous seasons, the previous series, novels are already out there. And you can't recall them unless you're willing to, to like, take them off the air for for a while and yeah and 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 i've pulled a series for that mm-hmm. i pulled is it wasn't because i wasn't morally comfortable with, with what was going on but it was because i kept writing myself into corners and i had to go back and, and give it a prequel and, basically and, well i had to go back and make changes and two of the books were already published and so i pulled the books that were already published and i started making the changes and one of the changes wound up adding a whole extra book in the middle of book one and I'm still, this is the big series that I talk about from time to time. I'm still working on it. And when it's, when the whole series is done, then it comes out. But that's what I've found that I have to do when a series is a single story rather than episodes in the life of a hero. If you really, really want to be sure that you avoid making promises that you're not willing to fulfill, don't publish the series until it's all done. If it's an episodic thing, then just remember that your audience knows the continuity better than you do, so you better not cheat as much as possible. But you can get away with a little more of it because it's episodic. But if the series is, or the novel, if it's one story, it must be cohesive or you will get crucified. Oh god, yes. So that's what we got for this one, Indiana Jim. Thank you for sending it in, and we'll see you tomorrow. The Everyday Novelist is written and presented by J. Daniel Sawyer and Kitty Nakian, and is produced by Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. The text is copyright 2023 J. Daniel Sawyer, and the production is copyright 2023 Artistic Whispers Productions Incorporated. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, and all other rights are reserved to the author. Join the conversation, submit a question, leave a comment, or a creative death threat, or find me at jdsawyeronminds.com or hit me at feedback at jdsawyer.net. We can't do it without you.